0: Well, I want to say hi to everybody on the Edmond campus, everybody at the Community Center, everybody at Bethany's Children's Center, all the folks joining us from prisons across the state of Oklahoma, everybody here in Oklahoma City, everybody online, everybody who lives in Texas and is hoping to emigrate to Oklahoma. uh, (laughs) Welcome, we're grateful that you're with us, really glad that you're here. All I want to do for these moments together is think about Jesus. There's a very insightful writer, G.K. Chesterton, and in one of his books, Everlasting Man, he says, one of our problems, especially in the West, is we're kind of too close to the world that has been so influenced and shaped by Jesus that actually the person who would be in the best position to judge it if they're not real close to Jesus would somebody be somebody who's much farther away. And that uh, a worthwhile exercise is to think about Jesus and forget about Do I believe he was divine? Just look at him purely as a human being and measure his life and its impact to try to understand his identity. So that's what I really want to do today. And it's quite remarkable when you start thinking about it. For example, I live about 30 minutes south of a city called San Francisco. Why is there a city called San Francisco? And it's because there was once a man named Francis of Assisi who inspired so much generosity and love that... People named cities for him, and he did this because of a man named Jesus. The other end of the bay where I live, where I flew out of, is a town called San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? It's because there was once a man named Joseph, whose life was intersected profoundly by this man, Jesus. Where I live, California, the capital of our state, you may know, is called Sacramento. Why is there a place called Sacramento? It's because one time a man named Jesus had a meal with his friends that was celebrating the power of self-sacrificing, self-giving love, and it was such a holy moment and so inspirational that it became the most famous meal in the history of human eating, and nothing else is close. Before I lived there, I lived in Chicago. Why is there a Chicago? No one knows. (laughs) Those mysteries that nobody can explain. But you can't look at a map, you cannot look at a map without being reminded of this life. The impact of his life is so deep that his birth remains the most widely celebrated birth in the world. Who's number two? What's the second most popular birthday? His Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted, most studied, most famous, most influential talk in human history. More books have been written about it, nothing else comes close. Even the instrument on which his enemies killed him, a cross, marks more graves to this day, uh, adorns more jewelry, has become the most famous symbol, logo, brand, if you will. Who could create something like that? His movement continues on, not only in spite of the people that try to stop it, but often in spite of those of us who think we're helping There's a guy, Eugene Peterson. Have you ever heard of the Message Bible? He's the one that translated that. And he writes about growing up in a Christian home and being picked on in the second grade by a bully named Garrison Johns. Here's what he writes. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Words of Jesus. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus' sissy. I arrived home most afternoons, bruised and humiliated. My mother told me it had always been this way with Christians in the world, and I had better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day, I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us and started jabbing me. And then it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness And I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. Again, this is Eugene Peterson, the guy that wrote the Bible. I said to Garrison, say uncle, he wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried again, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) So if you ever feel bad about evangelizing or you know, witnessing to your faith or something, you're not alone. The light of Jesus spreads, not only in spite of those who try to stop it, often in spite of those who try to spread it. A great Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, put it like this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about it, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And that's what I want to try to think about for a few moments. You have to ask yourself, forget again about religion, whether or not you believe there is a God, whether you think anybody could ever be divine. Just consider him as a man, as a human being who was born and lived and died Look honestly, with no prejudice at his impact on our world, and you have to ask, who was this man? Start by naming the obvious, it would be very hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world. Jesus never held an office, never led an army, never wrote a book, never traveled abroad, On Saturday, the day after he died, if you were to look at anybody who had much influence in history, no one would have looked less likely to have an impact the day after their death than Jesus. A tiny handful of remarkably unimportant followers at that point, the New Testament itself records them as being called unschooled ordinary men. And yet, and yet. 2,000 years later, it is simply impossible to imagine the world without him. To begin with, he gave the world its most influential movement. Try to imagine a moment, a world with no church, no Notre Dame Cathedral, no St. Paul's, no little storefront church in Watts, no house church in China, no crossings, and then the people. Imagine a world, no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Aquinas, no Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no Joan of Arc, no John Milton, John Wesley, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John the Baptist, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Martin Grubbs. But let's go back to the beginning, to the idea of the church. Not quite sure why they're laughing at that one. You know, in the ancient world, there were nations, there were families, there were ethnic groups, there were guilds, there were tribal religions, there were schools of philosophy. The church was none of those, and no one knew what to make of it. The Romans, this is true, literally sometimes thought of it as a burial guild, because they had those, and the church would bury people. They didn't know what it was. Paul would say things like, here, that is in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, everybody hated the Scythians in the ancient world, that's why he puts them in there. They're welcome here. Slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Disneyland, where I live, there's a ride called It's a Small World After All. Ever been on that ride? That song would drive you crazy by the time you get to the end of it. People of every gender, every nationality, every culture, every status, all together. Where before the church was there a movement Historical question. Where before the church was there a movement that actively sought to include every single human being regardless of ethnicity, status, language, wealth, gender to be loved and transformed? Do you understand? Not only had there never been a community like this, there had simply never been the idea of a community like this. It was his idea. And by the way, The 12 steps came out of something called the Oxford Group, you may know, about a century ago, people attempting to recapture the practices of following Jesus in the modern era. No Jesus, no 12 steps. Now, that's not to say that apart from Jesus, there never would have been an actionable vision of the human race as a family. It's just saying, as a matter of historical reality, such a vision began with this impoverished, crucified carpenter. Who is this man? Who does that? He also changed how we think about history in our day. In our day, we expect to see progress. Quite common in our day to survey folks and ask, do you think life will be better for the next generation than it was for the previous generation? And to be quite troubled if we think the answer might not be yes. Nobody in the ancient world would have been troubled by that. Nobody in the ancient world would have done that kind of survey. Most cultures then thought of existence purely in terms of cycles and endless repetitions of up and down, up and down. If you've ever heard of the expression of the wheel of fortune, that's where it came from in the ancient world. In that world, events were dated by rulers with power. So there would be year one of the reign of Augustus and so on. But over time, the power of every Caesar and their grip on the human imagination faded. While another vision kept growing strangely more compelling, until by about the 6th century, a Scythian monk proposed a new calendar centered not on the founding of Rome, but on the birth of this man Jesus. A lot of people don't understand this. The creation of the calendar was not just a chronological convenience. It wasn't just about how to schedule something. It was a claim. It was an idea that life is not a random cycle. It is not the wheel of fortune, but it has meaning. It is a story. It is his story. It is leading somewhere. And that its critical event somehow is the life of this Jewish carpenter. We talk about progress in our day. There was no thought of progress in the ancient world. Progress is a semi-secularized version of the notion of hope, that hope is built into the creation and one day the redemption. Jesus lived and died, and Caesar never heard a hint of Jesus' existence. But he was called, within a few decades of his death, by his disciple John, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, you might have heard that song in the Hallelujah Chorus or something, and it can sound like it's just poetry, but it's not. It's a claim. Take all the kings, all the power brokers, all the CEOs, all the social media influencers, put them in a group. Jesus is king over them. Not just a king, not even just the greatest king, he is king of kings, lord of lords, CEO of CEO, influencer of influencers. Now, in the first century, you got to understand, while there were still only a tiny number of insignificant, uh, not powerful followers, such a claim was laughable. If you were around then and you had to make a bet on whose influence is going to last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, no one is putting their money on this carpenter and his little motley crew of followers. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we give our children still names like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we give our dogs names like Nero and Caesar. How does that happen? Let's say someone gave you the assignment, live your life in such a way that after you die, the human race will divide the history of the world up into before you and after you. How would you go about trying to do that? And he did it. 2,000 years after his birth, every time any human being any place on the planet looks at today's date, we are reminded every day that this man has become the hinge of human history. That Caesar Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68. That the emperor Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821. That the tyrant Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe Jesus was not Lord of Lord and King of Kings, but how strange now. Every king, every ruler, whoever reigns, every nation that rises and falls must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Who is this man? He shaped how we experience and express compassion in our day. All human beings have a deep capacity for compassion, but Jesus changed this in ways that we don't often talk about. In the ancient world, in ancient Greece and Rome, generally, it was the beautiful, the noble, the strong, and the wealthy who were admired. And the rich might well give money for public works, a a huge building or something that was actually called monumentalism, as a way of expressing their greatness and putting the public in their debt, Uh, but it was a way to show uh, something that's very impressive. The weak and the marginal were not generally valued for their own sake. A first century Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. And that was not an expression of embarrassment or controversial, that's just simply how the world looked how people were regarded in the ancient world a child could be left to die if it was the wrong gender anybody want to guess what the wrong gender was was women there were in the ancient world historians will tell us about 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls what happened to the other 400,000 girls well, they, they died. They were, abort- they, were, they were just left to die of exposure. But these followers of Jesus remembered that he said, let the little children come to me. And they actually took in abandoned children. And they began the practice of godparents who would care for children if their parents died, which happened a lot in the ancient world. And then they began orphanages. And these changes are so powerful that one book about them by a Norwegian scholar named Baki, fascinating book, is simply called When Children Become People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Jesus is the first person, unless you become like a little children that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, Baki says the first person to point to children who were kind of low status creatures in that day as a paragon of what spiritual life is to look like. Widows, who were actually taxed by the Roman government because they were considered kind of a drag on the economy, were taken in and cared for by the church because they remember Jesus telling his disciple John to care for his mom when Jesus was on the cross. In the first three centuries of the church, there were two major epidemics that destroyed up to a third of whole populations. Do you imagine a third of Oklahoma City being wiped out? Scholar Rodney Stark writes about how influential this was in the rise of early Christianity. Um, In the ancient world, this created such a panic. In the general population, one writer from that day described people's response like this. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. Hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But people in this strange little community would bring in sick folks that they did not know to whom they were not even related for no reason at all and care for them at risk of their own health because they followed this man who used to touch lepers and actually seek out the blind and the lame and the deaf. To show compassion and bring healing for them. And to say, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me somehow. The least of these are the presence of him. And it's just kind of wrecked people. By the 1st century, what was essentially the first hospital was begun by St. Benedict. Have you ever heard of Benedict. By the 6th century, monasteries would commonly have hospitals attached to them. And over time, this idea, we ought to have compassion on everybody, all who are weak, began to take root quite broadly. So by the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering, and it chose, not surprisingly, as its symbol, a large cross on a flag known as the Red Cross. When you hear that name, when you hear of groups with names like the Salvation Army or World Vision or YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, or Goodwill, or Easter Seals, or Habitat for Humanity, or Food for the Hungry, or Compassion International. When you go to a hospital and it's got a name like Good Shepherd, or St. Anthony's, or the Good Samaritan, you see the touch of Jesus. The autistic or the Down syndrome or the disabled or the mentally ill or the broken, they were generally viewed by our ancient ancestors. Ancient world was splendid and wonderful in many ways, but also quite cruel. These were viewed as burdens to be discarded. We drown them. To see them instead as bearers of divine glory with a dignity who can be ennobling to us. This is what Jesus saw. Now, this is not at all to say that Christians or the church are the only folks in the world that have compassion. Far from it, and God knows how often we fall so far short of it. So it has nothing to do with us being good. But one scholar put it like this. If you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, Schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages for those who will never be able to repay. This probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Who is this man? His movement and touch has shaped education. Now, human beings have always loved to learn. That's what it means to be a homo homo sapien, the wise ones. But in the Greco-Roman world, formal education almost always reserved for the male children of wealthy families. But in this odd little community of the church, they remembered they followed a man who taught everybody. He was a teacher. And he commanded them to go out and teach everybody, all people. And so they did. They began to teach men and women, slaves and free. Until by about the fourth centuries, some of Jesus' followers entered into monastic communities, and for several centuries... These were the only institutions of Europe for the preservation of learning, not just scripture and biblical study texts, but also the great pagan texts. If you've ever read by Thomas Cahill, the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, that's the story. And then churches began to build schools, and then the church began to build universities. That's where they got started. First, the University of Paris, about the 12th century, and then Cambridge, and Oxford. The motto of Oxford University to this day is, the Lord is my light. And then eventually Harvard, and then Yale. 92% of all colleges and universities founded in the United States before the Civil War were founded in his name. When the Reformation came, the idea that every individual ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves ignited a dream for universal literacy. You all know you have a school attached to the Church of Crossing. That is not a coincidence. The reformer, Martin Luther, actually said he was going to write a book about parents who neglect the education of their children. This is a direct quote. Luther said, I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts Devouring their own young. Luther had a hard time expressing his emotions sometimes. (laughs) In America, back in the colonial days, the first law to require public funding for mass education was actually called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Because they believed that the evil one wanted to keep humans in ignorance. And they remembered that Jesus said, go teach everybody. And so they said, we're not just concerned about our children. We're not just concerned about our little tribe. We want everybody to give so that every child can learn. Because it honors God when children are enabled to think God's thoughts after him. The impact of Jesus on the life of the mind is so great. Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant... Thinkers, philosopher of the 20th century, when he was asked what made it possible for science to emerge, when it did, where it did in the West, his answer was really interesting. He said, What made it possible was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because if you believe that actually the universe exists because it was created by a rational being, then there will be an order to it that will repay studying. And if he was a person, then that means that it could well be quite unpredictable in some way, so it will repay observation. And the greatest explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was actually in monastic communities. For example, mechanical clocks were invented because monks needed to know when to pray. The first we hear about eyeglasses is in a sermon because monks needed to pour over texts. Dom Perignon, as you may know, was actually the name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were no Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. (laughs) The alphabet of the Slavs is called Cyrillic. They had no written alphabet, so a follower of Jesus who came to them named Cyril, eventually Saint Cyril, created one for them so they would be able to read the Bible in their own language. In nation after nation, it was followers of Jesus who came there and found languages that had not been committed to writing, set about acts of stupendous heroism to try to accomplish that task. In many, many cases, the first effort at the scientific study of languages came from these followers of Jesus. They compiled the first dictionaries where none existed. They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in many, many, many languages was the name Jesus. The Gospels, the story of his life, have been translated now into far more than 2,200 languages. No other book has been translated into one-fifth that many, and he never wrote a word himself. Who is this man? How do you do something like that? The Jesus Movement revolutionized art. You think of the beauty of this room and, 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 and music. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, whose divine comedy primarily shaped modern Italian. There's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible primarily shaped modern Luther. There's no King James Bible, which along with Shakespeare primarily shaped modern English. There would be no Gregorian chants. Modern music notation, you know those scales and those notes, do, re, mi, was an invention of the medieval church so that worship could spread from one community to another. That's how we got those notes. No Johannes Bach, who signed all of his works, Solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God. No Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, no Justin Bieber Christmas album. Imagine, <laughs> imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci Last Supper, no Pieta. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality, no giant narrative of meaning of life and death and hope that has gripped the artistic imagination like the vision of Jesus. And we don't even know what he looked like. The Jesus movement changed political theory. Jesus said one time, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And the idea that there would have been something that doesn't belong to Caesar would have been news to Caesar. And and by the way, we really need this impact of Jesus in our day. Sociologist um, James Hunter, who who said in a book that when when a society is healthy, lots of spheres flourish, art and education and philanthropy and religion. But when it fractures, everybody gravitates towards political power because politics is the only sphere that offers coercion, the power of the sword. You can make people do stuff. And so people start to think, if you're going to be relevant, you must be political. And even the church gets sucked into thinking all too often, we must have power. Because if we have political power, then we can legislate, then we can make them do what we want them to do, then we win. Jesus understood there are severe limits to the power of only being able to coerce somebody's body which is infinite to command their heart and their soul and their will, their mind. That's why he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You don't get it. And this became one of the most influential statements in political history. Until that time, it was assumed that the state had the franchise on religion. That's part of what held a tribe or an empire together. But from Augustine to Luther to John Locke developed this notion of limited government, that even kings will answer to a higher power, that coercion is not the ultimate form of power, that the state shouldn't run religion, the religion shouldn't run the state. Jesus was in his whole lifetime only ever in one election, and he lost to a man named Barabbas. Who shall I release? And Barabbas, of course, represented the way of political coercion and the power of the sword. How strange that 2,000 years later, both Rome's opponents and Rome's defenders are on the dustbin of history, but Jesus' kingdom keeps growing. He changed how we think about human rights and dignity and the worth of every individual. You all know these words we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all human beings are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, Jefferson said those truths are self-evident, but he was finessing it a little bit. They were not self-evident to Attila the Hun. They were not self-evident to Nero. They have not been self evident throughout most of human history. That's an idea. Every human being has been created equal and endowed by their creator. That's an idea that came from somewhere, see. You'll often in our day hear people say, I believe in a God of love. That's an idea that came from somewhere. Nobody in the ancient world said, I love Zeus, or I love Baal, or I love Molech, or I love Thor. It was Jesus who brought from Israel to the rest of the world this idea that there is one great God, and he is a God of love. When I was a little kid, I used to play a game called Daddy's Home. Five o'clock, when that front door opened, I would go racing down the stairs and leap into my father's arms, and I knew that briefcase would be set down, and those big, strong arms would be wrapped around me. I loved that game. To one day when my mom said, you can't play it anymore. And I said, why not? I don't want to stop. And she said, Well, it's not that your dad doesn't love you because he does. And it's not that he won't be there for you because he always will. It's just you're 37 years old, and the day comes eventually, those arms get a little weak, you know. See, this is an idea that Jesus taught, that God is like a father who is racked by tormented love for even his most wayward, rebellious, stubborn child. And now this has serious implications. Paul says, there's now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And Thomas Cale writes, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. Now, very often, supposedly Christian individuals, voices, nations, churches violate this in horrible ways. But the power of Jesus' teaching has this subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. So often, reform movements like abolitionism are are led uh, by many folks who are Christians. Jesus uniquely taught love of enemies. This is another idea. The idea that you were to love your enemy was not a natural human idea. In fact, one monograph about life in ancient Rome is simply titled um, Loving Friends, Hurting Enemies. That's what they admired. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. But there was once a man who said, turn the other cheek. Somebody makes you go with them one mile, go with them another mile. Somebody tries to take your cloak away, give them your shirt. And they weren't just words. When he died, he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And see, this marked the people who followed him, and and they would often also be killed. We're told by one ancient writer when that happened, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, they were torn by dogs. And perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. Nero would take followers of Jesus, cover them with pitch, and use them as human torches to light gladiator games. And this continued on and off for three centuries. And their response was not to dream of revenge or to start an armed revolt, but to love and pray for Nero. How are you going to stop people like this? This unique association of Jesus with love for enemies is so strong that the Princeton historian and writer Hannah Arndt, who was not herself a Christian, actually wrote, The discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Who was this man? Just regard him as a man. How do you explain his life? He inspired a writer named Tolstoy. Tolstoy's book, Resurrection, inspired a lawyer named Gandhi to start a community movement of reconciliation. The last letter Tolstoy wrote to anybody outside of his family was a letter to Gandhi praising the self-giving love teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. In the most famous speech of the 20th century, Martin Luther King departed from his script, To quote the old prophet Amos, justice is going to roll like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream, and the crowd at the Lincoln Memorial could not keep quiet, and they started shouting out, tell it, amen, like a church crowd. Not this church crowd, but like some church crowds do, tell it, amen. (laughs) And so King couldn't go back to his script, and Mahalia Jackson just piped out, tell him about the dream, Martin, and he started telling him, I have a dream, I have a dream of a a world that isn't yet, but one day will be where every human being will be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character, where the sons and daughters of former slaves and former slave owners will join hands and we will all be once Is his dream. And the amazing thing about Jesus is not just that he changed lives 2,000 years ago, he keeps changing lives. World War II hero, Olympic guy, Louis Zamperini, about to destroy his life with alcohol, and Jesus changed his life. Former... White House, uh, real arrogant counsel, felon in prison, Charles Coulson, finds Jesus changes his life. Little Sunday school teacher, Rosa Parks, sitting on a bus, and they tell her to move because she's black, and, and Jesus gives her the power not to do it. Addicts to this day find sobriety. Marriages that were falling apart find renewal. Real troubled people find peace. Dying people find hope. And by the way, you can find him today if you want, if you want. He still changes lives. And if you tell him you want to become his follower and you want to learn about him and you want to put him in charge of your life and you want to receive his forgiveness and his grace as a free gift and become his child, you can do that right now. Because, see, the real question is not, who was this man? The real question is, who is this man? I'll tell you. He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever taught, He is the greatest thinker that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He launched the greatest movement ever known. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with every passing year. He is the Son of God and the glory of humankind. The crucified carpenter of Nazareth is the hope of the nations and the Savior of the world. And that's who this man is. So... I would love to pray to him in his name. A prayer team's gonna come forward right now, and they would love to pray with anybody who would like to prayer, who would like to come to this man. So prayer teams, come on now. You join with me in prayer. I pray God for everybody in this room. I don't know what folks think, what their background is when it comes to faith or religion how they might have been damaged, what needs they have. I just know there's this light that keeps shining and nothing can put it out. And so often our world and so often even churches mess it up and distort it and abuse it, and and yet Jesus comes shining through. So may he shine through right now in just the way that's needed. By everybody who's listening to these words, I pray in his name, amen.